0: Now I'm here.
1: And now I'm here.
0: And now you're here, dear listener, we can begin.
1: Welcome to episode 24, our versed episode.
0: We are Martin Packer, who has some trouble finding his call recorder.
1: And I am Marna Wally from the Z West Development Organization in Poughkeepsie, New York.
0: And where have you been lately?
1: Uh, lately, I have been to SHARE in Phoenix. It was March 11th through 15th. That was a wonderful conference.
0: And on March 12th, I presented with Anna Chagall at GSE UK, the said Capacity Management Performance Analysis Working Group in London. My word, when we say lately, that was quite a while ago.
1: Yeah, it's been a while since we've been able to get another episode out. And that's quite a mouthful for the name of that working group, too. It you is know, ZCMPA
0: Working Group, which I attempted to expand the acronym, and I might have got it wrong, but never mind. And then in April, I was in Stockholm at a technical customer session doing a couple of presentations. It's rather fun.
1: Oh, yeah. And then I went to TechU, the IBM TechU in Atlanta, on April 29th through May 3rd.
0: And we were in Berlin, May the 20th to 24th, for the Z-Technical University, of which more are none.
1: So we did get some feedback for this episode.
0: So several people have complained in the past about our use of stereo, the fact that we're using it at all. So you know what? We give in. We're now in glorious mono. Actually, that first happened in episode 23. I wanted to acknowledge the feedback. And actually... In some ways, I'm glad we, we've gone to mono because I've recently had spates where my over-two-years-old Apple AirPod uh, in-ear buds have been dying one side at a time. And when that happens, you get into the the need to have mono because otherwise you lose half the, the dialogue. So we've made that change, guys and girls. Yeah,
1: and but in all to... honesty, you know, Martin, when you say we give in, it was really you giving in, right? Okay, I
0: give in. <laughs> and acknowledge that it was me who gave in.
1: Okay. And we also have a little bit of follow-up from our last episode.
0: Yeah, so we were talking about if this, then that, and the thermostats. So tell us what's new, Mona.
1: Yeah, so we talked about smart thermostats last episode and how I was all excited to have one. And I also use an app on my phone called IFTTT, or if this, then that tool, and I use that tool to kind of um, alert me when my monitor, or I'm sorry, my thermostat at home has been touched by somebody in my family that doesn't like the temperature that I set it at. And this is great because now I can see on my phone what people are doing and I you know, have evidence of I can see what they're doing.
0: And you can put a stop to that. And most important of all, you've got evidence.
1: Yes, I do. And I can put a stop. Com- it. That's what I Dumbing really like.
0: evidence, probably. Yeah.
1: And Controlling. I can control it, which I love it. So the thing is, now, um, you know, Nest has been deprecated in favor of Google Home, and it's happening on August 31st. So that API isn't going to be available on If This Then That anymore, and that's making me a little upset because I really like that combination of the API and the Android uh, tool that I had set up for it.
0: So actually, we've got a couple of links in the show notes, and one of them in particular is an interview that Google Vice President Rishi Chandra gave to Variety magazine that said that the company planned to replace much of its then than functionality with its own Google Assistant routines. So the question, now is going to be, what are you going to do?
1: You know, i got to do something, because if this and that is not going to work on my Nest thermostat very soon, and I'm going to have to figure something out, and I'm supposing I'm going to have to just succumb to Google Assistant or some kind of an app that Google provides, I guess.
0: Well, it's quite widely available, whether it's the hardware devices, or in fact, actually I have a pair of headphones that has Google Assistant built in, and so is my phone, so that's doable, it's just really annoying. But it actually reinforces my view that, at least for now, automation is ephemeral. You know, any particular piece of automation you might build or you might use could go away at any time. In fact, the classic example is uh, the notion that fridges might well have Our Lady of the Cylindrical Persuasion built in, and that service could well go away long before the fridge dies. So, uh, you know, careful with the automation till it settles down.
1: I know. when We really get to like something. I guess I can't like it too much because it might go away.
0: Okay, Mona, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Explain the title of the episode.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's called Our First Episode, and the name of this episode came about because we were both in Germany together, and so we were trying to think of a clever title to come up with, and it's also the basis for our Topics Topics, which you'll hear in a little bit.
0: So there you have it.
1: All right, so now we have what's new. Let's talk about a new function APAR that I happen to have noticed come about. It's OA55959, and it's a new function PDUU support for HTTPS. So first of all, PDUU, if you don't know what that is, that's the IBM ZOS Product Documentation Upload Utility. And this utility is how you get a dump sent to IBM. Can be compressed or encrypted, and then they're sectioned off into smaller data sets to make them easier to transmit. Well, HTTPS is really important because a dump can contain, contain sensitive information, and FTP is becoming increasingly not acceptable for many customers. So we had problems with FTPS, with firewalls and other setup problems, and so customers really did want to use HTTPS, and. This doesn't look like an option that has been incorporated into the incident log of ZOSMF at this time, but I'm hoping to think that in the future, with incident log sending uh, the information back with PDUU and using FTPS, I'm hoping over time it will eventually start to use HTTPS, but that's not a promise. It's just something that I could kind of see coming, I hope. So it's good that this
0: support appeared in the iPod.
1: Yeah, it is. So even if you're not using incident log, you can go use it now, but I'm hoping someday we might have that equal support in incident log.
0: And the other thing we shouldn't fail to mention that's new is tailored fit pricing for IBM Z or Z. And this comes in two flavours. There's the Enterprise Capacity Solution, which is a full capacity solution, an enterprise consumption solution. Um now, both of these are different from the traditional running for hour model, and I should have Explain enterprise consumption solution is basically summing up the service units consumed and billing according to the total, which is what I tend to call area under the curve. So if you ever hear me say that, I'm probably referring to enterprise consumption solution. And the prereq here is that all the machines involved must be IBM Z14 models, uh, models 1, M1, M5, or ZR1, and ZOS must be 2.2 or higher. Hopefully most people have got 2.2 or even preferably 2.3 at this point. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a link in the show notes to all this. Uh, and just a footnote, we did actually back in episode 19 in the performance talk talk about license-related instrumentation, taking. So you might want to review that as well when looking at the uh, announcement letters for tailored fit pricing, both enterprise capacity solution and enterprise consumption solution.
1: So now let's talk about Ask MPT, the section of our podcast where somebody asks us a question.
0: Right. So Danny Nyker, who I know very well, who some people call my evil twin, um, has asked what I think is a very good question, and here's his question: In ZOS two point four, CSA subpool key eight to fifteen, is it usable for user-defined applications?
1: Yes, yeah, so it is a, a very good question because it's going to take a little bit of an answer to explain it. So, prior to ZOS 2.4, we did have u- user key common storage available, but it was turned off by default, and we didn't really want people to use it, but we did understand that some people had to turn it on.
0: Now, the major downside with it was that there was no control over who could
1: actually use it. Exactly. There was no granularity. So, what's happening in ZOS 2.4 is that capability to turn it uh, back on is gone by Buying. It's gone.
0: <laughs> yeah, and just to remind you, as I say, it's, it's a system-wide switch that's gone.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: So actually, let's talk about the motivation for this. So I think Danny's question originates from the need to still be able to use user key CSA because of legacy stuff. In fact, actually, I know Danny because he's a customer friend of mine, and I know that's uh, why they needed it.
1: Exactly, and other customers have had the same concern as well. So if you still need to use user key CSA, can you after 2.4? Yes, you can. However, you need to use this thing called RUXA, and RUXA had to be invented. Okay, so RUXA stands for Restricted Use Common Service Area.
0: Now, the trick here, and maybe it's, obvious from the name, is that the words restricted use are the operative ones. So that's the new thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. That is. It's a restricted use area. So it's only for the security defined applications that you say you want to use the restricted use common service area or RUXA, which is different than what it was before COS 2.4. And it is managed as a SAF resource so that you can have more granular control over who can or cannot use Ruxa.
0: So that means controlling it via a security product like Racket?
1: Correct. So <laughs> Ruxa had to be invented, I said, and that Ruxa was invented in APAR OA56180. It's available prior to ZOS 2.4 so that you can become familiar with Ruxa and start to use it, and then it will be continued to be offered in ZOS 2.4 so that you can uh, still use your legacy applications if you can't change them.
0: So thanks to Danny for a a good question. If you have questions to ask us, please do feel free to get in touch. And now it's time for our mainframe topic.
1: Thanks, Martin. And this is a very good mainframe topic. It's talking about Kix server pack coming into ZOS map. So, this is IBM's first delivery on the new installation strategy that you've probably been hearing about for quite a while now, and we are ready to prepare for delivery. And the first product that we're going to put into a server pack that's installable with COSMF is going to be Kix and all of the associated Kix products that come into that SREL.
0: I'm glad you pronounced it Kix. But anyway, Kix is the first of many products, I assume.
1: Yes, and I've always called it Kix. Uh Yes, and it's the first of the many products and the product as well, keeps as well, but we're in fact going to be rolling it out into all of them. But we're going to start a little bit small and make sure that we do this correctly and that we make sure that we get the right feedback and we fix any possible problems. So, yeah, it's, it's going to eventually be rolling out to everything. So what's gonna, what you're going to see when we're ready to do this, and it's, we haven't announced what the date is, but we're working on it because uh, we need to figure out everything internally that's going to be okay first. But the, what you are going to see is when you go to Shop Z and you go to order your server pack, you're now going to have a choice of what kind of a server pack do you want. Do you want the old server pack, which was the ISPF custom pack dialogs, or do you want the new server pack, which is going to be a ZOSMF, portable software instance.
0: Now, why would I care about this item?
1: Why would you care? You would care because this is the new and better way of doing installations, and also because this will be a common installation method, not just within IBM, but between IBM and all of the ZOS stack software vendors. So with that in mind, we think that it will be easier if all of our software in the entire, you know, stack IBM and vendors is packaged consistently and you install it consistently.
0: So there must be an no, I no reason for talking about this item roundabout now.
1: Yes, because uh, like I said, we have done a statement of direction for kicks coming into a portable software instance in ZOSMF, so we're preparing that internally right now. So that's why I want to talk about it, because I want to get people ready for it. Well, we've already rolled back via continuous delivery PTFs the infrastructure that you're going to need for both IBM portable software instances and vendor software instances. So since that infrastructure is GA, and you've probably got it installed on z SMF already, I wanted to make sure that customers are becoming familiar with this so they can start to use it.
0: So, what is the strategy in the round?
1: Okay, so the strategy is to use ZOSMF. Okay, that's why another reason why I've been so adamant for people that they really need to start ZOSMF and become familiar with it. But it's to use ZOSMF software management plugin, which is. One of the best plugins, I'm sure, in ZOSMF. I use it all the time. I use other ones too, but I think that was one of our best ones. Um, and with ZOSMF software management, that is the tool that you can use to package any software that you have. So that would be IBM or vendors can use the same packaging tool now. We never had that before. And we can also do the acquisition and the deploying of that software with ZOSMF software management. Okay, uh, deploying is the new word for installation, putting the code into libraries. And it was beyond that because we can do configuration now in ZOSMF. And as you can guess, we are going to use workflows for that configuration because it's another thing I've been pushing people to learn, uh, learn how to do workflows so that you can do configuration. So we will have some standard supplied workflows that we are going to give you as part of server pack. And we will be of course enhancing those as time goes on with more customized ones for the product you've ordered. But we'll in the first step we'll just take what you had in Server Patch Batch Job and we'll make them workflows. We really are hoping to make this a smooth transition for customers to come from the ISPF custom pack dialogue where they've been used to having its server pack installed into ZOSMF, where it will be hopefully a smoother transition, a more common and easier-to-use transition, and then with workflows it will be uh, better for them to do configuration and upgrade work.
0: So what do I get at the end of this process?
1: Well, you get the end of the process, you get the same thing. You get a properly installed software product that you've ordered in ShopZ. Hopefully it's been a little bit easier to install if you're familiar with the format for it and we've also been able to position so that you can do better configuration with workflows in it. So initially it will be equivalent to the results of what you've got in a server pack install, but we're hoping actually to make it better in the long run. So
0: it gets you to the point, I guess, where you can start creating Kix regions in the usual way.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you've got the software you know, installed or deployed, the software is sitting into the data sets and you can then go into your additional configuration or customization, however you want to create your kicks regions. And that really is a whole different topic.
0: Yes, yes it is. So when can I expect this to show up?
1: Well, I did mention it's a statement of direction and we don't yet have a firm date on where we're going to deliver it. We are working actively internally to, to get this moving, right? We've, we've been working very hard on this and I've been very much wanting to see a Kix portable software instance myself, and so I'll be getting one of those very soon. So as soon as we have more news, we will announce it. So
0: just now you mentioned vendors, so obviously this is a strategy which uh, involves software vendors. So when can we expect them to start using it?
1: Well, presumably whenever they're ready to. Like I said, all of the infrastructure has been delivered in PTF, so they should be ready to deliver it whenever they want to. And so I would just check with one of your software vendors to see when they're going to deliver a portable software instance and have it installable with the OSM app. Just ask them.
0: Yes, exactly. Or even harass them, maybe. I'd
1: maybe like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very much myself. a software vendor myself, I, I, I'm
0: trying to go as fast as we can. <laughs> I'm talking to software developers myself. Yes, my style is to harass, so maybe I'm unusual. I don't know. Anyway.
1: Yeah. So, what the, a big idea here, and why we want to talk about this on the podcast is we really want all of our clients, all of our ZOS clients, to become familiar with the ZOSMF software management plugin specifically, and also with workflows. Those are the two big things that you're going to need in order to do software. Uh, installation and management in the future so definitely look at that now to help you we understand that not everybody gets to see a presentation or do maybe do a lab at a conference or even attend a conference so we've got a video available for what a workflow looks like and it's a very short video it's only eight minutes and we'll put the link in the show notes well of course there's a video there would have to be one there <laughs> yeah but you know those videos that those are not they take a long time to make and they're not exactly easy, so you never know how hard it was to make just that little eight minute video.
0: Yeah, eight minutes it's more like more like eighty minutes to make one of those. Oh longer.
1: I wish it was eighty minutes, more like eighty days it seems. <laughs> Um, and also, you know, that's for the workflow side of it. But we also have two little screenshot paths that you can see that we've taken and put into a PDF module that you could view. Um, and we'll put the link on that on show notes as well. So you could see the path through software management on how to do a deploy. Word for install. Let's move on to our performance topic. Martin, what do you have today?
0: Well today's topic is about DB two and workload managers I.O. priority queuing.
1: And if I'm not mistaken, this is a follow-on from your screencast in blog posts that you did.
0: Yeah, Screencast twelve was entitled Getting Workload Manager Set Up Right for DB Two. But actually this is not the same thing as that. It kind of follows on from it though. And there's been quite a lot of talk about this topic recently in various places.
1: <laughs> what topic? What What is this topic you're talking okay. about?
0: Okay, what, what, what this is this the whereof I speak. Okay, so yeah. it's whether to turn off something called IO priority queuing in WLM.
1: Okay, so why would one want to turn off IO priority queuing in WLM?
0: Well, this is where we get just a little bit techie. So... If you have a service class in WLab with DB2 subsystems in it, it tends to be heavily I.O. sample oriented, which is actually quite unusual amongst the various service classes that we typically see in systems. Now this heavy I.O. sample orientation means that access to CPU could well not be properly managed. Well, manager is doing its job, but it's just not a, a great situation to be in. And the reason is because CPU rather general purpose CPU and ZIP samples are few relative to the IO samples. So in the velocity calculation, IO samples tend to dominate for something like a DBM1 address space. Um, By the way, talking of DBM1, most of DBM1 is now ZIP eligible. So you would expect to see in the CPU category quite a lot of ZIP samples, whether using or delay, um, rather than just general purpose engines. Um, So what that means with the high propensity to have I.O. samples is we could achieve a goal even with a lot of delay for zip or CPU. You know, a lot of queuing, which is definitely not what you want.
1: But how can I know it's not properly managed?
0: Well, there are two ways. The first one is from the system side, you'd start seeing lots of CPU. Uh, and zip delay samples in RMF workload activity data and indeed the RMF workload activity report. So that's on the system side. On the DB2 side, you might well see symptoms like prefetch engines exhausted, which has an impact because it could well turn into unwanted synchronous IOs or sync IOs as we tend to call them. And that in turn would mean bad SQL performance. And this actually looks awfully like a real zip shortage if we're not biasing zip usage towards the DBM1 address space service classes. Now here there is instrumentation in DB2 in the form of DB2 statistics trace. So prefetch disabled is a statistic in DB2 statistics trace. So, you know, not properly managing DB2, um, key subsystem address space. Uh, performance is a bad thing, which could happen if you have IO priority queuing turned on.
1: So, should you just turn the whole thing off?
0: Well, given that the keywords in performance are it depends, the answer here is well, not necessarily. The first thing is it's SysPlex wide, which obviously incorporates system wide, so it might well affect other work that needs IO priority queuing treatment. And secondly, DB2 itself might actually need it. So the whole point of IO priority queuing is to enable various parts of the IO subsystem to be prioritized towards the highest importance work. So you know it might be shooting yourself in the foot to turn it off, uh, even from DB2's own point of view. So in, in a nutshell, you'd be foregoing for fine control over IO priority.
1: Okay, so I'm taking this to mean it's a case of proceeding with caution.
0: Yes, very much so. So first thing you need to do is to actually have a service class goal for DB2 that is reasonably achievable. The hint here is that you know 99% as a velocity goal is probably not an achievable goal. And I have actually seen that in one or two customers. So please get your velocity goals actually reasonably achievable. Reasonably doesn't mean you have to actually make them. You just have to be fairly close. So more or less achieving, I think, is really what we're talking about here. And that step might well require you to actually adjust the velocity goal for the DB2 service class, let's say, down, probably down, maybe up. The second step is you need to work out what the velocity is that you would achieve if you turned off IO priority queuing. So to a first approximation, what you do is you take out the using and delay for IO samples in the velocity calculation to do this. And I say to a first approximation because if you change the goal, if you change the regime, things can change that you can't entirely predict. But it's a reasonably good first approximation we're talking about here. So if you don't do that, And you maintain the existing goal, then you could have unpredictable results because suddenly the CPU and zip using a delay samples are what drive the velocity calculation uh, and, and life could be different, including utterly failing to meet the goal to the point that WLM gives up.
1: So if I've done all that, how do I know that that action I took was good?
0: Well, the first thing is you'd want evidence that Workload Manager is managing access to CPU for DB2 better. So probably you're going to be talking about fewer delay for CPU samples or fewer delay for zip samples and more using samples, maybe. Um, But obviously, DB2 is not in isolation here. So we would want to see that the performance of other work that we cared about was preserved, so you would obviously dive into an RMF workflow activity report or the data to figure out that the action was beneficial. Now that's on the system side, and on the DB2 side, I mentioned prefetch being turned off. Well, maybe that doesn't happen anymore, so or it doesn't happen nearly so much. So that would be a good indication that this change had been beneficial to DB2 and SQL, etc., with this change.
1: Good. Okay, but that's not quite the end of the story, is it?
0: No, not quite, because, as I say, turning off IO priority queuing could well change the level of goal attainment. So you should obviously continue to evaluate goal attainment and monitor, and maybe you need to adjust the velocity goals um, in, in the wake of this.
1: Yeah, but you know, that just sounds like business as usual for you performance people.
0: Yes, it is. Continual evaluation of goals, or at least not infrequent evaluation of goals, is, is the name of the game with Workload Manager. It, it, it's not bad. It's, it's just something that has to be done every so often. So the moral of the story is that changing things with Workload Manager, as with everything else, needs some care, especially with one that could make a fundamental difference like this one. And now it's time for our topics topic.
1: Yeah, so when we were trying to think of a topics topic, we thought that we would do a Berlin trip report since both Martin and I were in Berlin on May twenty through 24th.
0: Yeah, so we actually got to see each other.
1: Yeah, it's it's actually been quite a while. It was really good to see you in person. So let me talk a little bit about my side of the conference first. So I gave uh, about six sessions, I think it ended up being. Um, A couple of comments or some highlights that I remember from the conference were I gave an SMPE for rookie session. And uh, that's usual. I've done that before to talk about what SMPE is and try to introduce the concepts to those that are new to the platform. But what I really liked is I had excellent attendance for that session. Including Uh, me. Yeah, yeah, I was excellent
0: in my attendance because I didn't ask a question.
1: Yeah, I was going to say. And I think you are paying attention. So all the S&P oh, yeah. ses- sessions now you can do on this podcast, huh? So I had, I think it was 44 people there, which was really good. And uh, not a, not all of them were heckling like Martin. <laughs> Martin didn't heckle. You were very good. But um, there was a lot of newer people to the platform, which I was really happy to see. It turned out to be a really good conference with a lot of new faces, and I got to meet some new people, which are just joining and learning about ZOS, which I, I thought was really exciting. And another thing is I I did a couple of sessions on ZOSMF, which I always like to do, talk about what's new, uh, the latest news and what's new. And there seemed to be a lot of people attending those. I had 82 people at those sessions, which I thought was a pretty good number for especially a topic that, you know, oh, so many years ago might not have really had a lot of people join it. But people seemed interested into it. And, you know, a lot of people were using ZOSMF and they were becoming a whole lot more familiar with it, which I was really happy to see. And the other thing that kind of stuck in my mind is for the first time I gave a ZOS 2.4 preview. So I got to talk about that release for the first time. It's very hard to talk about an entire preview of a release in an hour, uh, but I did squeeze it all in. And then we did repeat that session. And when I look back at the sessions, I had over 150 people at those sessions combined.
0: I think you must have had 150 in the one I was in alone because it got very warm.
1: Oh, I know. It felt like about that. I don't know. Maybe the count got wrong, but it was it was very cold stand or very cold. It was very hot, standing room only. Um, And I think a lot of people did turn away. And then the repeat of it was just packed as well. So I was really happy. Uh, Very good attendance in that. A lot of people did see some functions that they were interested in using in 2.4, which, of course, makes me very happy and hopefully will make people want to move to 2.4 very quickly. So that's what I did in in the conference itself. But I did have one free day outside the conference. And a friend of mine uh, and I, we went to the Reichstag. And we had a reservation and we got it to go up to the very top. And that was really interesting. That was mm. a fabulous thing. If anybody needs something to do in Berlin, uh, not expensive thing to do and a very fun thing is to go to the Reichstag with a reservation, of course. So have you ever been to the Reichstag, Martin?
0: Uh, no, I haven't. That sounds like a great one.
1: Oh, it is great. We had to get a reservation, so definitely do that. And then the other thing we did is we went to Der Dome. The cathedral there, and we walked all the way to the top. And so really, I saw a lot of the looking down on Berlin <laughs> on my one free day that I was there. So that was what I did outside the conference. And I'm thinking about what we did joint together. So Martin, we usually do poster sessions. I did my own poster sessions on ZOSMF, and I was really happy. A lot of people came up to talk to me about their own configurations of ZOSMF and ask questions about maybe what they should be doing, which was excellent. That's exactly why I was there to talk about that. And then we did our joint one. You want to talk about that one, Martin?
0: Yes. So so we did our usual thing of putting the two posters next to each other so you could do double duty. So we did one about our podcast um, and, and that was kind of fun. And out of that came a thing I'm going to call picture in picture, which you'll have to see one day.
1: Yeah, maybe I'll put it up on the show notes. We'll see. But anyway, I think we should from now on do picture in picture in picture. We'll yes. see how that goes. Recurs- we don't get to see each other enough, but yeah.
0: <laughs> Recursion are us or cursing when we're trying to record.
1: <laughs> um, and another one thing, I mean, there were some people there that didn't had never listened to podcasts before. So I did help somebody actually download a podcast app and subscribe to our our podcast. So I hope that person is out there listening to it. Uh, for me, the, I, I use Android, as you guys know, and the podcast app of choice that I gave that this client was CastBox, of course, because I like that one.
0: And for balanced coverage, if it's iOS, then it obviously has to be Marco Arment's Overcast.
1: Mm. Okay, so why don't you talk a little bit about your trip report to Berlin now?
0: Well, you had six sessions. I only had five. And actually, I wasn't the only person speaking in two of those. So two of those were with Anna Chagall, and the first one of those was something called engineering, which is all about taking processor analysis down to the individual logical processor or engine level. So that was kind of interesting. There's a lot of discussion in that one.
1: I yeah, that- I was there. And by the way, you had some really good graphs in that, that session as well.
0: And the other one we did was on the Friday morning, so you know that's always a challenging slot and that was on Z hyperlink updated this year with the new log write for d b two and the vsam support and there was another one that that Anna and I wrote together, which actually I did on my own, which was the uh, two l pars good for l pars better presentation which also got some discussion going and then a couple of solo efforts so by solo effort, I mean, you know, ones I wrote and delivered all, all by myself. So my slowly evolving parallel SysPlex performance topics session and my even more fun with DDF session, which uh, I've learned quite a lot about in the last year. So that one got refreshed as well. So so for those of you who wondered what my secret trick is, I tend to keep a stable of presentations and introduce a new sp- presentation every year and then update those Presentations as, as needed. So I use the term refurbishing presentations. So that, that makes it quite easy to be honest. And outside of the conference, well, each day, don't tell anyone, but I took a session out to actually walk around, which I can thoroughly recommend. It's a good way of unwinding and gives you a good sense of where you are. In particular, it was really interesting to wander around the former East Berlin. And there's lots of things I saw there. So um, a few memorials, some quite interesting streets, uh, some interesting architecture. So that's what I did outside the conference.
1: Mm, That sounds like a lot of fun. And you got a lot of exercise, just like I did too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, another thing, when we did, uh, were able to see each other, which was good, and we did get up to, to dinner one night, we do have a nice picture of us with some green beer. And it, it's not St. Patrick's Day. It's actually Woodruff that's in that beer that makes it, I think, taste pretty good.
0: So this trip, I sampled green beer and red beer, and I always do that. And also, I'm sure I had several versions of yellow beer, so traffic lights in beer, and lots of comfort food.
1: Yeah, I had lots of comfort food too. It just wasn't German food. <laughs> As a reminder, hopefully we'll see each other again in Amsterdam, May twenty fifth through twenty ninth, two thousand and two is the next event day for TechU, and hope to see everybody there. Two
0: thousand and two? You just said two thousand and two. Oh, I did. <laughs> yes, you did.
1: Uh, so anyway, hope
0: twenty twenty. Hopefully, you have twenty twenty vision. There, how was that for recovery?
1: (laughs) (laughs) 2020, how's that?
0: (laughs) And as we come to the end of this podcast episode, as is customary, we're going to talk about customer requirements.
1: IBM customer requirements we discuss are neither committed nor indicated that they are even going to be in plan. They may not be even a good idea to do. There are simply two people talking about customer requirements publicly available for viewing and ones that catch your eyes. By no means should every requirement that they talk about be construed as anything that the IBM Corporation is even thinking of doing. Our opinions are our own. Your mileage may vary. Void were prohibited and items displayed are a serving suggestion, part of a nutritious breakfast, and past results are not indicative of future performance. Yes, Martin. The customer requirement that I found was a relatively new one. It's called RFE 131187, and the link will be in our show notes. It's called ZOSMF REST Files Put to Remove Windows Carriage Return Characters. So let me read from the RFE. The ZOSMF REST Files API doesn't work well when writing Windows files to ZOS datasets or HFS files. The doc state each line of data delimited by a line feed in the request care set is converted to EBCDIC and written as a record to the dataset or member. The line feed character is removed from the data. However, Windows Files contains a carriage return and a line feed, and the carriage return character, which is hex zero dog, is not being removed. The resulting ZOS datasets therefore have a blank line after every data line that shouldn't be there. Okay, so that's what the requirement has. And looking at this, it was rather a simple one, and I thought it made a lot of sense to do this so that you don't have to have your programs uh, accommodate that blank line. What do you think, Martin?
0: Well, I just think this is one of these uh, really mucky areas of ABS- ASCII, EBSIDIC, carriage returns, line feeds, line feeds, carriage returns, line feeds without carriage returns, carriage returns without line feeds, etc., et cetera. Et cetera. So this drives people nuts when they pop these things into editors or whatever and, and they look completely wrong. So it seems reasonable to me that um, some attempt is made to clean this up.
1: Yeah, and, and requesting what you want uh, is a nice way to do that, right? So yes. selecting on the options that you want and then getting back the data that you expect is is definitely mm-hmm. within reason. Yes,
0: so so getting what you want, if you select it as long as you know what you actually want and as long as what you actually want is the right thing. That's always <laughs> tricky with this area, as I think I've just done to death.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So let's move on and talk about places we expect to be speaking at and visiting in the near future.
1: Yeah, so my next trip is going to be the Great Share Conference in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, August 5th through 9th.
0: And guess what? For the first time ever, I'm going to be at Share, for obviously the same dates, and I'm going to be doing a presentation. In fact, it's one of the ones I did in Berlin, which is even more fun with DDF, which I'm really looking forward to evolving again for this one and giving to a completely different um, set of people. So, me too.
1: That's great. I mean, I mean, I'm really going to be happy to see you at Share, and I'm sure that there'll be a lot of Share attendees that are dying to to see you there as well. So, what have we got on the blog, Martin? I know you've got a lot of uh, blogs out there recently.
0: So, I have six posts. Three of them are in support of or inspired by or extracting lessons learned as part of building the engineering presentation I mentioned just now. So, part zero basically introduces the idea. Part one is called A Happy Medium. And it's about vertical medium logical processes and hyper-dispatch and vertical polarisation, but essentially around vertical mediums that, that just fail to be vertical highs. Engineering part two is about non-integer weights, which really are a thing. Uh, if you look at individual logical engine vertical weights. Changing gears completely, the fourth one is called What's in a Name Revisited Again? And I tend to do these contorted titles that riff off Revisited and even more fun and all that. So this is about the code we have that parses data set names and a few new tricks. So for example, if I see .back or .bkup or one or two other things, then I actually now highlight those because obviously those are likely to be backup files and I want to trip over the fact that backup files were looking at, at the job that accesses them. And then I have a very contorted pun in this one, guys and girls. Um, a blog post called a slice of PI. Okay. A slice of pie, if you will, which is all about performance index for percentile response time goals. And finally, change of gears again completely, something called Elementary My Dear Sherlock, which is about something called Sherlocking. Now, Sherlocking is when some independent developer produces an app, and somebody like Apple comes along, takes the idea, and produces their own app. And the name came from the fact that somebody had an app called Homes. Apple came along with an app called Sherlock. You can imagine where that's going. So that's a <laughs> that that's very much in the topics uh, end of my blog so six items this time
1: oh that's funny i didn't know that that was a, a, a there was a name for doing that i can imagine why why that's pretty funny uh i only had one blog i only had one and it was on the kick server pack going into the portable software instance which really was what we moved into this this podcast episode because i wanted to talk more about it we do welcome feedback, of course. Any new ideas that you have for topics that we can cover are surely welcome.
0: So you can, in particular, address them to me as martin-packer underscore at uk.ibm.com or packer on Twitter.
1: And I'm m-w-a-l-l-e at us.ibm.com. And on Twitter, I'm mwally.
0: So it goes.